Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us on this Wednesday morning to check in with our Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Are you finding things to keep yourself busy during this week in between Christmas and New Year's? Yeah, I've been checking through the news to see. Uh, we've been through all the year-end interviews with the politicians, and they haven't started talking about what they're going to do next year. So they're uh, not generating a lot of publicity, but there's a couple of other things going on. One thing that I found pretty disturbing is an eruption that's occurred around the Belfry Theatre here in Victoria, which is a showdown, I guess you'd call it, over... Uh, how the politics of the Middle East have spilled over into the spring production schedule for the Belfry. So uh, uh, it's a lovely little theater company uh, located in a neighborhood in Victoria at an old church. Uh, They put on a good mix of plays every year, and they announced that in the spring they're going to do a production of The Runner, which is a Canadian play written by a Canadian. It's set in Israel. It is a one-man play. Uh, portrays the moral dilemma facing a volunteer healthcare worker who is torn between treating a Palestinian woman who is accused of having committed violence against Israelis and a wounded member of the Israeli Defense Services. And spoiler alert, the healthcare worker decides to treat the Palestinian before he treats the Israeli, uh, does so in defiance of what he's been told to do, does so because he feels bound by the Hippocratic Oath. Um, Based on that summary, Simi, I would say uh, the way, to me, yeah, yeah. Balanced, the way you just described sensitive. it to me, I thought, how can yeah. anybody have a problem with yeah. this? And I, the thing I should say, too, about the play is that it's uh, been around for almost 10 years. It's been produced across the country. Uh, CBC even did a radio drama version of it, but it has become politicized for two reasons. Uh, one reason is... Uh, that a series of allegations that the Israeli government to some degree helped pay for the travel of the playwright uh, to go to Israel and interview members of this volunteer help for organization. Again, I'm just repeating what's in the petitions and the right. protest letters. I don't know if that's the case or whether that's just more politics. <clears throat> and the other issue is that it gives a a full-dimensional portrait of the Israeli, but it doesn't really portray the plight of the Palestinians in any detail. So those allegations, it's racist, it's colonialist, it's Zionist, it's about what you would imagine. 
The Belfry Theater, it's a community theater, right? It's dependent on community support. I mean, they, they had a meeting just before Christmas, a three-hour meeting with the protesters to try to find some middle ground on this. The protesters walked out. The theater entrance has now been defaced, uh, Free Palestine and that sort of thing. There are battling petitions circulating here in the capital. Each has attracted about a thousand signatures, according to the Victoria paper. And one petition calls on the Belfry to cancel the production. And the other one says, you better go ahead. So, I mean, you can see this would be a nightmare for, as I said, a a small community supported theater company uh, puts on its plays in a converted church. It's a good theater company, but... You can imagine, right? They they don't have security. Uh, they're not going to be able to get security. Uh, you can imagine that the the advice to the theater company would be: don't stand your ground, because uh, you know there the the great risk of the protests escalating. You've made the theater a target. So I I don't envy them the situation. It's only developed in the last two or three days. So and and over Christmas. So. There hasn't been a lot of community comment on this. I would hope that the provincial government and the city, both of which support the theater company, will come out and defend the right of the theater company to put this play on. As I said, it's a Canadian written play, being on the CBC. It's been staged in Toronto and London, Ontario and Halifax. It should be staged here, but I don't like its chances at the moment. Well, sure. I, c- I can imagine that that the people who work there or volunteer there, they must feel like they're they're real. They have a no win situation on their hands. Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, I mean, it's lamentable how politics kind of gets into everything, right? Uh, yeah. The the boycott Israel movement uh, has spilled over in all kinds of ways in Hollywood into actors who've done. Um, who've, you know, had a contract to uh, promote some kind of product manufactured in Israel, artists who've performed in Israel, musicians, and so forth. Uh, there's an awful lot of grandstanding goes on on this issue. It's gotten worse with the war, needless to say. But, uh, you know, again, I, I kind of go, um, I tend to come down on the uh, artistic freedom side of this kind of an issue, Simi, and I say, you know, if... Uh, Roger Waters wants to, formerly Pink Floyd, wants to tour the world denouncing Zionism, and he does it. You don't have to go to his damn concerts if you don't want to hear him on that issue, uh, including some former members of Pink Floyd who won't speak to him over it. And I go, if a little theater company here in Victoria wants to put on a play by a Canadian, which was deemed sufficiently artistically sound to be staged elsewhere in the country and on the CBC... I think it would be discouraging if they don't go ahead, but they're a small operation, Sammy. And as I said, Mm -hmm. do they really want to become a lightning rod for what's going on all over the world on this issue? Victoria has had a number of protest marches sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Again, it's public. You can do it. We have free speech here. Uh, unlike in some of the countries that the pro-Palestinian people admire, but uh, there you go. It's mm. not a uh, it's not a happy situation. I'm very sorry that it's descended on the Belfry, which, as I said, uh, I've gone to their. I haven't recently gone to their productions, but I did for a number of years, 
and they were a fine little theater company. All right, we're checking in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, and now we're going to be talking about fentanyl. We know this is a huge problem, particularly in BC, but Vaughn getting an idea, I guess, from a U.S. paper about just how bad it is. Yeah, headline on the Washington Post newspaper on Christmas Eve. Here we go. Fentanyl super labs in Canada pose new threat for U.S. opioid epidemic. So this story highlights the growing problem in this country uh, of labs that manufacture fentanyl pills. So raw material brought in from elsewhere or just assembled here, but now getting heavily into manufacture. The article goes on to quote Canadian authorities saying that they're near as they can determine uh, these labs are producing more fentanyl pills than are needed, are consumed in the Canadian market. They assume it's being developed for export. It's early. And the American reaction is the American government, Simi, is cracking down on drug imports from south of the border, from Mexico. And really this story putting it on the radar screen in the States, which is you may have a problem coming with drugs exported from Canada. Uh, production going ahead here in these so-called super labs. The story has two cases uh, in Vancouver and one in Toronto and saying, you know, it's fairly easy to get the stuff across the border. Uh, Probably you're going to have calls in the United States for much tougher inspections on the border. And of course, that won't be great for all the other reasons Canadians and Americans go back and forth across that border. Um, Yeah, and it seems to me like people like to think that the border problem is south of the United States, not north of the United States. Yeah, and, you know, that is the history of it, although the Washington Post did a nice job here talking to Canadian authorities, pointing out that there's been a long-standing issue of drugs from Canada, manufactured in Canada, going south. And the big example they use is crystal meth. Crystal meth labs here, and the stuff would go across the border. So um, there's, and it's an easy border to get back and forth across. In spite of, you know, you look at the lineups uh, when everyone's going to shop in Bellingham, uh, it doesn't seem that way, but it is. And the other thing the article says is, look, the spread of fentanyl was initially tied to the way other drugs have spread around the world, which is port cities, the material, the drugs are brought in, and that's how they get into North America, and that's how they get spread around the continent. But now you've got this big shift that's occurred in Canada, and we've we've had reporting on this too, that we've gone from simply being um, finding deposits of, of in stores and supplies of drugs here to manufacture. Uh, Same thing is happening in the United States, the Americans in Washington state. What they used to find was pill presses, the raw material, the raw fentanyl was there already, and they were just manufacturing the pills. But now you're assembling the raw materials here. And it's very hard to prevent the raw materials coming in because some of them are chemicals that are used for other kinds of purposes. So Uh, The article points out, and we've again reported it here, Simi, that North America has a much bigger problem with fentanyl than anywhere else in the world. Uh, 70,000 deaths in the United States, 7,000 in Canada, but 2,000 in British Columbia. Per capita, 
we have pretty much the worst problem with fentanyl deaths of any place in the world. Uh, not surprising. Uh, criminals are manufacturing the stuff here because there's a market here, but the indications now are they're making so much of the stuff, they're also shipping it across the border. And if the American government is successful in cracking down on the stuff being brought into the United States across the Mexican border, well, the cartels may well switch their production to Canada because it's easier to get stuff across the border. Yikes. Uh, did they say where this was the biggest problem? Uh, British Columbia. The, the two biggest examples they used, uh, seizures and reported here, mm. uh, you know, um, well over a million pills, I think, seized in one here. Uh, but Ontario as well. And there, you know, they mentioned that the place they busted in Ontario was very close to the border. Well, every place in Canada where people live is very close That's to true. the border. We all live, yeah. you know, almost within sighting distance of the border. So, uh, and we go back and forth a lot. So, you know, I, I think the other thing the article mentions that I think we have to be aware of here is it's an election year in the United States. And you're going to have candidates grandstanding on the border. We've already had it. I think one of the Republican candidates has already said, well, we should be cracking down on the northern border as well. Well, you know, the northern border, as we know, is central to the North American economy as well, from shopping, which we all know about, to just-in-time delivery in the automobile industry, where the stuff goes back and forth. Across the border, uh, the parts are made in the United States, shipped across and assembled in Ontario and vice versa and back across the border. Uh, this could be enormously disruptive to commerce and our lifestyles here unless we can get a problem on it. I see one voice, Simi, in the article, uh, 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 authority in Washington state who says, don't get carried away on this. The cartels have managed to lower the price of the production of fentanyl pills in Washington state to 45 cents U.S. per pill. It will be very hard to compete with that price. That's, of course, the wholesale price. You can pay five bucks for a pill. Uh, but uh, they said the cartels are getting so good at producing the stuff. This fellow in Washington state says he doubts very much. Uh, that the Canadian manufacturers will be able to undercut the cartels in the United States. So, you know, uh, the Washington Post, as I said, has put this story on the radar screen and we should hmm. be thinking about it, whether or not it's going to turn into a huge problem. I think it's too soon to say. So we shouldn't relax or we should not perhaps worry about it as much, according to that senator, because the cartels are good at economics. Is that it? Like we yeah, should, no, they're it, competitive. It's a business, right? It's I a guess. business. And they've gone from you know, manufacturing whatever drugs. I mean, you could, you could go way back to prohibition and note how uh, Canada was a great source of booze for the United States because uh, they would, uh, the stuff was made here and they hauled it back and forth across the border. So, you know, it's, uh, long it's got a long history of uh, illicit trade in products back and forth across the Canada-U.S. border. And that's the history. The thing is, fentanyl's so deadly that obviously our authorities simi have to be concerned about it here it is what i think the stats show it is the main fentanyl overdose is the main cause of death yeah. for um, you know sort of between the age of 19 and mid 40s it's it's pretty bad here we should be worried about it just because of what's happening here never mind whether or not somebody might 
put it into a container and ship it across the border. Very, very true. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, right now we're at that time where we're thinking about the new year. It's, it's a couple of days away here. And you're probably not wanting to think about how much money was spent in the last few weeks. Maybe you did go all out, didn't mean to. Maybe you overspent a little. I mean, it's a tough time of year when it comes to waiting for those credit card bills too, right? But there are steps that you can take right now, it turns out, to make things a little better for yourself financially in 2024. We're going to get some advice on that. Tyler Thielman joins us, President and CEO of Spring Financial. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much for being here. I don't know if a lot of people are thinking about how to get their finances in order at this time of year. How about you? Sometimes people are. I mean, it's the end of the year. People make New Year's resolutions. Quite often, it's something to do about their finances. But yeah, I agree. It's uh, you know, it's a tough month because it's expensive. People spend a lot, and uh, you might just not want to look. Well, that's exactly it. We might not want to look. So, what are the benefits of looking, Tyler? What should we be doing? Well, look, there's a few uh, really important deadlines and things coming up for December 31st that I think people should be aware of. Um, first of all, I don't know. If uh, many Canadians know, but this year there's a, a new account called the First Home Savings Account. So it's FHSA. Um, and with the rising prices of housing, it's really important to try and save as much as you can. So if you open one of these accounts, you don't even have to con- contribute a dollar. But if you open an account this year, you automatically get um, $8,000 of, of contribution room that you could do this year or next year. And next year you get another 8000 So that's one thing you could do before year end, even if you didn't have a dollar to contribute um, and, and gets you started on something. Right. Now, Tyler, I've heard more and more about this FHSA, and I feel like people really need to know about it because there are a lot of benefits to it, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Actually, I, I spent some time uh, over the last month learning about it. So um, it's up to $40,000 total. So it's not massive, but it's definitely something. Um you can contribute $8,000 a year and you can carry over a maximum of 8,000. So if you open the account uh, this year, you can carry over your $8,000 and next year you can contribute $16,000 total. Right. And that money, what if you don't end up buying a property? You can put it right into your RRSP, right? That's right. You can transfer it over into your RRSP. So all of the money you contribute is, uh, is, is you're not going to be taxed on that money. So if you take $8,000, of your own after-tax dollars and you contribute it, you'll get a, a nice little tax refund uh, when it comes time to file your taxes as well. Okay, so that is the FHSA. So what else should we be doing? 
Well, another one for anyone who has kids is uh, the Registered Education Savings Plan. So uh, with that plan, uh, you'll get, uh, if you contribute $2,500 for your child, the government will give you a free $500. So it's like making 20% right off the bat. Um, And you have to do those contributions before December 31st. So again, that's the Registered Education Savings Plan, and you have to put $2,500 in, you'll get $500 from the government for free. All right. That's pretty good. Anything else? Well, I mean, actually on the RESP, there's another little grant for BC, which I was just reminded of, and it's called the BCTESG. So it's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Can you do that again? (laughs) Yeah. BCTESG. And if you just do a quick Google search on it, you'll look. But basically, if your child is between the ages of six and nine, uh, they will give you another free $1,200, and it, there's no restriction. So this, it's not income-based. It's just a free $1,200. You just got to fill out a form. So, again, that's not year-end, but just a reminder, if you're in BC, look that up. It's called the BCTESG. Okay, that's a really good free 1200 bucks then for people if they do that, right? That's for their child. Exactly, free $1,200 right into your RESP. Okay, I know that something that I am concerned about, I'm sure a lot of people are too, is that when we roll over into the new year and we start getting those paychecks in the new year, Tyler, uh, they are less than what they were at the end of the year because it's time to start paying those uh, CPP premiums again. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you fill up your, your CPP premium in a, uh, before the year end, uh, your, your net amount that you're going to get in January is slightly less. So make sure you keep that in mind. It's usually a few hundred bucks or something like that, depending on how often you get paid. Yeah, that does make a difference there. Okay, and what about making donations at this time of year? Is it worth it? Yeah, um, the charitable donation, of course, if you can afford it, um, you know, it's a great thing to do for the world and society. And uh, you, the, the tax credit is quite effective, actually. I think you get about 30% of your donation back. This is assuming you're paying tax. So if you if you don't make any income and you make donations, it's, you're not going to get a, a, a tax credit or it'll be not useful for you. Um, but yeah, if you, you, you want to make a charitable donation, you have to do it by the end of the year, December 31st. And, uh, and then you can claim that when it comes to tax time as well. Okay. So any final thoughts? And I mean, is it time to start opening up those bills and thinking about this? Or can people, do you think, put it off until the new year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's never a bad time. So, I mean, Spring Finance, we're open today and the rest of the week. And uh, we, we focus more on the debt side. And so we help over 80,000 Canadians every single month look at their finances, assess, you know, what kind of financing they possibly need. And so we talked a lot about the savings side. There's lots of other things you can do and think about. But the important part is, is not ignore it. Have a look at your finances. Talk to somebody. Talk to Spring Financial. And uh, and figure out what the best plan for you is. Right. Is that? Do you think twenty twenty four is going to be a year for people to get their financial house in order? Will we get? Do you feel some easing up of the pain that we've been feeling? Well, inflation is coming down. It still is there. So I mean, I think a lot of times people think that uh, oh, inflation is coming down. That means prices are going to come down, but that's wrong, right? Prices are going to keep growing just at a slower pace. And so, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to feel necessarily, uh, oh, things feel a lot cheaper this year. Um, that, that, that's going to keep going. But, you know, I think on the optimistic side, everyone's got to take it. It takes some time, look at their finances, kind of make a plan, see what they can do, see how they can grow their income. 
And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people talk about reducing expenses, which is important, but growing income is way more powerful if you can manage it. And, uh, you know, that's something for people to think about, see if there's ways of, of earning a few extra bucks in 2024. Oh, boy, if you can manage it. That's the tricky part of that. Tyler, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. I think there's a lot of people this week and even today who'd probably rather be skiing or snowboarding, snowshoeing, you name it. They'd rather be on the mountain somewhere and can't do it because of the conditions right now. We knew with the El Nino things were going to be a little bit different this winter, but boy, it has been a harsh one for the local mountains in particular. Take a look at Grouse. Closed today for everything because they simply don't have enough snow and it still doesn't look like that's going to change over the next week or so. So we thought we would take a look at some of the other areas around BC about what is going on. So joining us now is Michael Ballingal, Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. Good morning, Michael. Good morning and season's greetings to you and your listeners. And to you as well. So where are you right now? I'm standing literally right outside the top station of the gondola in the middle of the village. The twinkly lights are, are absolutely beautiful. We're we're at the same elevation, 5,600 feet above sea level as this top station of Whistler. So, you know, and, and I, I, I hate to brag because we're doing okay. We're, we're at 94% occupancy, 80 out of 118 runs. These will be the four busiest days of our season the next four days. Okay, but has it been, can you compare it to other years? Like, what are the conditions like? Not very good. <laughs> you know, when, when I say that, we're, we're just, just under a 100-centimeter base. So normally at this time of year, we would be about a 150-center base, and most of the mountain would be open but some of the double black diamond runs. But, you know, it, it's only minus 2 in the village today. It was minus 31 this day last year. And, of course, we're a destination ski resort, so we have a lot of locals that ski here, but we also have visitors from all over the world. And the mountain... Is, is literally full with those visitors that booked back in July and August. And, and so they were coming, whether the snow was here or not, they were coming to find a, a white Christmas and, and a winter holiday. And uh, we're just happy that we're able to, uh, to live up to that reputation of a white Christmas. Well, that's good, at least. But it doesn't sound like your base is very big. But that seems like the case. Even at Whistler, the base right now is only about 98 centimeters. So this is a problem it feels like everywhere in B.C., yeah, Supernatural British Columbia is not living up to its reputation right now. You know, competition is, is fierce in the ski industry. Japan is doing very, very well. Europe got a big dump this year. Some of the resorts down in the United States are doing good. But the one thing we know about British Columbia, it will cool off. The, wet, the moisture is still up there in the atmosphere. We just need the weather to cool off, and I think we'll do okay. But we're, we're very lucky to get through this Christmas period with the snow that we have. And we know that more is coming in January. Well, let's talk about what's it been like the last few years then, Michael? Can you compare? You know, it, 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 it really, this is a low ski season. The last time it was like this was about 2008. And yet it was our third biggest snow year in our history by the end of the year. We normally close this resort with 250 to a 300 centimeter base. So is the pattern coming later in, in the season, uh, that, that could be the case. Our white Christmas is going to be something that we, we don't get very often down in the valley, but yes, up in the mountains. I mean, the, at the different elevations and over in the Kootenays, some of the resorts there are doing well. Here in the Okanagan Belt, Sun Peak, Silver Star, and Big White, 
we're, we're doing okay, but, you know, we certainly feel sorry for our brothers down on the coast. Those are very important teaching uh, resorts for, for the province and for the industry, and they teach tens of thousands of new skiers every year, and we're seeing that 10, 20 years later with those skiers from the lower mainland now bringing their families for a holiday at Big White Ski Resort. It is our biggest market in the world. Oh, wow. Okay, so how do you deal with that then as a resort, just never knowing kind of year to year how it's going to go? Well, summer grooming is really important. It, it, it's clipping the, 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 the bush and the trees and, and preparing the, the runs for as, as minimum of snow as possible to open the runs. And that's what's really important for the people in your listening audience. If you're going up to the hills, when they do open, only go on the runs that are open because those are the runs we've spent a lot of money on, whether it's snowmaking on those particular runs or summer grooming. There, there used to be a time that we never used to worry about that at Big White because we would get hundreds of centimeters of snow every year. Well, we've gone from about 27 feet annually to 24 feet annually, and three feet make a big difference on some of the Black Diamond runs. Wow. Okay, so then I guess it's also about having other attractions, other things for people to do as well. Well, the highest skating rink in Canada is very, very busy. Of course, our outdoor skating rink is free. Our tubing park you know, if you just you just have to go down and listen to the kids, you know, hooting and hollering and having a wonderful time with their parents. And, and, and like I said before, there are many thousands of people in our resort that are seeing snow for the very first time. The good thing about British Columbia, it is very, very popular with Australia and New Zealand. So Whistler, Big White, Silver Star, Sun Peak, Picking Horse, Rebel Soap. And I apologize, that's a grooming machine going by. Um, it, 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 these folks make their bookings back in May, June, and July. And, and for them, it's absolutely wonderful. They, they don't know what 150 centimeters are. It's really just the locals that are really disappointed in our conditions right now. The tourist is having a wonderful time. Okay. Well, what, what's your forecast like then for the next couple of weeks? Dry. Oh. And, and that's, you know, that's, and again, with this modern grooming that what we can do with with a 100-centimeter base is, is great on the green and blue runs. But, uh, no, the, the forecast isn't great. You know, we were supposed to get 15 to 18 centimeters two nights ago. We got three. We've never really lived up to what the forecasts are saying, really at any of the resorts right now. But uh, it's coming, and uh, slowly, slowly, and the economy of ski school and the coffee shops and the rental shops and, and the food and beverage, it, it's all ticking over. And uh, I think our reputation is intact. This is an unusual year. It, it's not going to be a normal year. All right. Well, look, I'm glad to hear you're being philosophical about it, Michael. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, we are not done celebrating yet. Oh, we've had Hanukkah, we've had Christmas, but we're also right in the middle of, right now, Kwanzaa. And if you think, well, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that, ah, then we have just the guest for you. Yazin Karaga Masago is with us now, the founder and director of the African Descent Society of BC. Yasin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much for inviting me to radio station to have uh, share my perspective with the Kwanzaa. Well, we, I think, think we need to learn, event. a lot of people need to learn more about it, Yasin. So what is Kwanzaa? Uh, thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, Kwanzaa is, a, is a, the celebration of African-American uh, arts and culture, uh, cultural heritage. 
Uh, that brings together all African Americans and African people from the continent around the world to celebrate the festivities of uh, African heritage and, and culture, starting from the month of uh, December 27 until to January 1st. Okay, and how did it get started? Uh, the event was uh, started by uh, one of the African American uh, professor, a well-known professor and the members of the African-American culture to try to get a day, an event that not only reminding or connecting them to the continent and, and that of the diaspora, but they wanted to celebrate the festivities of the harvest festivals which happening back home and uh, that their ancestors or the ancestors rooted to them, where they rooted the culture of celebration in Africa we were celebrating the harvesting month, and that's where the beginning of Kwanzaa, uh, kind of the supplementing um, an additional celebration of the, the Christmas uh, season related. So very much as you can see, definitely, the way we celebrate the Christmas time to bring the families or going to our family members. And the, the difference with the Christmas that uh, Kwanzaa has a, uh, so what you call the, the seven principles of Kwanzaa, which we celebrate uh, every, uh, or, or what you call the, 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 the kinara, the candle, candle. For that day is the principles on your candle holder. Or we have seven candles uh, that we bring together into what you know, we call in Kiswahili, uh, kinara. So Kiswahili is, 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 a, is just a, is a, Kwanzaa is a Swahili what what itself so it, it the, the the celebration brings together all uh, african families community and culture led by professor maulana kalenga now i understand that the number seven is important right there's a lot of things that revolve around seven yeah can you tell us an idea of more of that oh i think we've lost our guest there actually no Oh no! There he is. Can you can you give us an idea of more yeah, of the number is, seven? There is a there is a there is what we call in Africa. There is what the what we call uh, kinara. I don't know if it's iman having the the having faithful being a faithful person. When you say uh, when 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 you say in Africa that uh, uh, the faith faith. <clears throat> Faith is, is related to the way you can you can see how we 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 celebrate or we believe in our in our in our religion or uh, believing in in our hearts in our uh, in our just believing people uh, doing the righteous things of our reminding of all our struggles. Uh, that the African Americans have gone have gone through. Generally, that is the the the, the, the principles of number seven related to, to 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 reminding of the being faithful. You know, yeah. Yeah, Sin, how can we all celebrate? How can we all join in and recognize Kwanzaa? Uh, we can all celebrate, and 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 this Kwanzaa, if you look at it, is definitely it's not for African American Day. But is a Canadian day in nature because when you look at the the principles of uh, Kwanzaa, for example, unity. Uh, unity is rooted from the div- from the fact that Canada is a multicultural country, 
um, believes into is a country branded as multiculturalism and diverse diversity that distinguishes us. Uh, distinguishes or separate Canada from the rest of other countries around the world. That Canadian, they believe in that principle of uh, being united. In fact, there is no person called the Canadian. Everybody is a Canadian. And that's the meaning of uh, umoja, unity. And then the, the Canadian, they believe in that principle of, uh, we call it kujichagria, self-determination. They encourage everybody to work hard wherever they are. Working hard, finding a job uh, is a reminder. Kwanza reminding us as you are beginning a new year, always reminding to your work of uh, being a self-oriented, determined person, and that appealing to the immigrants. We have a lot of immigrants coming to our country here in Canada, and we remind that it's a principle of working hard in Canada. Uh, Canada believes in the principles of working together and sharing all responsibilities in this country those are those are known facts about canadians so the the collective work sharing uh generosity you know giving canada is known global as a, a, a canadian they give you mm-hmm. know the the welcoming society the most polite society that one that doesn't have any uh, that's the, the known facts about uh, uh, being being a canadian recognition yes. being tolerant so this principle of Ujima, collective, and Ujima means cooperative economics. So everything that you see in this country, Canada, is about cooperatives. There's a way of Canadian can, when you come here, you definitely see that everything, they believe in that mutual working together, yes. uh, cooperation. And of course, you've seen even lots of uh, micro, micro, micro uh, cooperative unions that brings two people together. So... The, the, the principle of uh, purpose, you will definitely, if you're new in this country, they will tell you, have a dream, have your own purpose, uh, be creativity. Canada is all, almost, Canada is based on, on these principles of creativity. Any arts and cultures, you know, uh, the public art, creation, things of that nature. And, and, and it is a, a country based on the religious, rooted from the religious tolerance, uh, faith. So we all, you can definitely see that this 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 principle, or what you call the matunda ya kwanza, and and the celebration of the festivities, mm-hmm. the fruits, the the harvest, it's it's really the the bottom line of Canadian, and everybody should have been uh, celebrating this culture here, and uh, and the unfortunately that yeah. um, there's been a little support. And, uh, and awareness about the recognition of uh, many African American heritage in in, in 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 the country that very few people still need to to understand why there is such a day celebration of of each day right. um, from from day one until the last day well, of this event. Well, Yasin, it feels like this is a good time then for us to get to know about Kwanzaa. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much again, and, and thanks so much for hosting me. This is Mornings with Simi. Now think about the last three or four years, for an instance. How much has your job changed 
pandemic hits, everybody's job got upended. And, you know, when it was over, it just seems like things are changing all the time. Well, if you're a university student who is just graduating, how do you even compete with that? How do you get a hold of the job ladder when things are changing so rapidly? And it probably wasn't a lot about what you were taught in university either. Now, post-secondary institutions are recognizing that perhaps they need to do more to help their students get on that job ladder. Well, joining us now is Tony Batella, who's a managing director for the Career Centre at UBC. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What is the Career Centre? Uh, the Career Centre is a central location on campus uh, where any student, whether it's a first-year student right up to our PhD students, uh, come in and uh, seek advice uh, on anything related to employment, their future, uh, and it can be done uh, with one-on-one appointments. We also run workshops. Uh, we also put on events. We host employers on campus. We put on career fairs. Really, anything to do uh, with employment and the student's future, uh, we get involved. So would you say things are getting busier at the Career Centre? It's Yeah, it, it's it's generally been pretty steady. Um there's always time students have questions and it can come throughout. Uh, we often do find uh, January can be a particularly busy time for students. We sometimes joke that it's the, the New Year's resolution effect. Uh, people have been spending time with family asking all these questions about what right. they're going to do and they realize, oh, I should uh, maybe seek some advice. So we tend to see a bit of a bump in January. And so what can you do for a student then if they come to you? Because it's one thing to take the things that they're doing at university and then translate that into real world skills, isn't it? Yeah. So part of what we do is actually normalize. And I, and I appreciate the, the way you set it up in terms of things, uh, how things are changing. Um, it, I, one of the first things we do is we normalize that things are changing and it's, it's okay to be uncertain. In fact, you know, if you look statistically, you know, almost everyone at some point deals with some uncertainty. And I think it's, it's particularly common in students. Um, if you think about university students, because um, for many of them, Career is this thing that just feels like way off in the future. It's this thing that's way out there. Oh, yeah, I'll deal with that at some point. I'll deal with that at some point. And there's always a more immediate and pressing issue they have to deal with. They have an exam to prepare for, papers, et cetera, et cetera. So to a large degree, what we have to do is, is normalize that, hey, it's okay that it's uncertain. It's okay that you've been thinking about other stuff. But great that you're here. And now we can start thinking about things. And uh, a lot of it is, again, depending on the student, individual student and their situation and their interests and uh, what they might be into, is support them in, in uh, looking at a range of opportunities or possibilities that they might be interested in, and then developing a strategy of things that they could be doing that makes sense for them in their life. Okay, so how, how do they develop that strategy? A lot of them will probably tell you that, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. And again, that is the norm. Uh, and part of what we do is reflect that and say it, it is the norm because if you think about it, um, they as students are changing all the time. They're going to be a very different person by the time they graduate, by the time they start. The whole university system is designed that way. Uh, even if you, someone finishes in four years or five years, whatever it might be, um, there's a lot of change that happens in an individual in a four or five year period. You know, I change a lot and I'm in my mid-50s. Someone who's 18 or 19, that's a big chunk of their life. As well as they're taking courses from professors and others, very smart people who've designed these courses to challenge their thinking, to make them think differently, question the world, see things in different ways. And one of the results of that is, of course, they start to see the world differently. They start to see their place in the world differently. And that also impacts the types of opportunities and possibilities they're, they're interested in. So again, so we try to normalize that. At the same time, 
the world they're going to graduate into is different than the world they started in. So all these things are changing. So we normalize that and say, hey, that's okay. One of the key things you can do is, again, based on how you're feeling right now, we can't be worried about how you're going to be feeling in a year or two from now because we don't know. What are the areas that most interest you? Are there particular issues in the world that you're most interested in addressing? Are there particular roles that you think you're most interested in? Are there particular organizations you're most drawn to? Let's use that as a starting point. And then we you know, work with them on very straightforward uh, strategy that usually has three components. One of them is, hey, let's do some research on the, those possibilities you identified. And that's the beauty of the Internet. That's pretty easy to do. The, and then the other two parts we'd argue are the more important parts. Let's, are there ways we can get in, uh, experience um, related to what you've just talked about? Luckily, at UBC, there's a wonderful co-op program, so there's a great way to get experience that way. Uh, our office runs what's called a work-learn program, so there's great opportunities to get experiences on campus. Plus, there's places to volunteer on campus and other ways to get experience. So that's one of the things you know, we really want students to start doing right. relatively early and also connecting with people who might have similar backgrounds. Tony, let me ask you, what kind of, how can we help? For instance, how can employers out there, managers out there, how can they be of more assistance? Because I see a lot of job listings right now and they all want, you know, experience that these, these students are not going to have. And yet they still have the other things that they might be able to learn into this job very quickly. Yeah, I think for employers and, you know, and all of us have probably been guilty at some point is be more flexible and really look at what are the, you know, what are the core competencies we are looking for as opposed to looking for a specific credential, uh, whether it's a specific, oh, I only want people with this degree or I only, I need people with this amount of experience. Um, right, just see the competencies and the potential and see all our responsibilities in mentoring and developing and giving some people those first opportunities. Uh, and again, Co-op programs are a great way for that. Uh, summer jobs are a great way for that as well. Uh, so again, both when we're hiring generally, be flexible, but also look for those other opportunities to hire students while they're students to get those shorter-term experiences where they can you know, develop those skills and also build up their confidence. Right. And so this also requires a bit of a mindset change for those students too, doesn't it? Because even from first year, second year university, they should start thinking about where is this going to lead me? Yeah, it's always useful to have something to aim towards the thing that's really interesting if you look at the research very few people end up working in the area they thought they were going to initially. oh that is so true that's so true right yeah yeah we often we'll often joke and say most people end up doing something working in a job they didn't expect they were going to do in an organization they probably never heard of because the other thing about bc is something about 95 97 percent of people work for small and medium enterprises so it's actually that's where most people are going to end up but that's in many cases they hadn't even heard of them which makes experiences, again, so much more important because sometimes as you work somewhere or volunteer somewhere or connect with even family members or adults who are in different places, you discover different things that people do or different organizations that you might not even have considered before. So being open-minded and just trying things and making sure to take those first options is a critical part of the student experience. Okay. So if a student is thinking about doing this, what, what are the first steps they should take then, Tony? Um, if, if a student's really, you know, unsure and needs some support, that's one of the reasons we as a career center, we exist. Um, you can just contact us, um, our, our office, uh, and, uh, go through the website, ubc.ca slash careers and, uh, yeah, book an appointment. That's many ways the first place to start. Just talk to someone, someone who knows a little bit about, uh, the career space from a more objective standpoint. The challenge sometimes is, 
almost anyone can talk about career. We've all had experiences and everyone loves to give advice. But often that advice is based on someone's own experience or that own perception of their own experience, as opposed to actually the reality of what the employment market is like these days. All right. Good advice. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Tony. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There are some big changes coming to schools in Quebec starting December 31st. So right at the new year, the education minister has announced in Quebec that they are going to be prohibiting cell phones in most public elementary and high school classrooms. They say this is a distraction for students. Teachers still have the option to use mobile phones for teaching purposes. I feel like that's a very important distinction there because I know teachers will say, listen, they are important. We use them as a teaching tool still allowed to do that. Now, Ontario has done this as well. They've implemented restrictions. They did this back in 2019. And they do allow specific uses of cell phones with teacher consent, though. But still, quite a few restrictions. Is it time for BC to consider doing something similar with that? Would love to hear from you on this topic. And where are the nuances in this discussion? Well, joining us now is education advocate Tara Hool to talk more about this. Tara, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Nice to be here, Simi. What do you think about this? Is it time for BC to consider a policy like this? It's long overdue. Um, and um, Ontario, Quebec um, have followed similar global um, you know, trends where we're now seeing countries that are pushing and have already impa- um, put in, implemented different cell phone bans for the basic reason that it has a negative impact on learning and it's also affecting uh, students' behavior. Um, and that uh, it's very distracting. There's a lot of bullying going on. Screen addiction is a huge one. Um, and probably more um, damaging what we're seeing now is that we're seeing globally that um, there's a lot of international uh, studies going on where they're finding that investing heavily in even school computers and classroom technology does not improve people's performance. And also, like UNESCO is also pushing, um, last year they came out with a massive study, it's pushing for a global ban saying that the devices distract from learning, they're bad for students' mental health and well-being, and they come with a whole host of privacy concerns for young uh, people. So, um, And also, I believe that the big push here in British Columbia is being led by teachers who have seen the um, detrimental effect um, in their classrooms when it comes to uh, cell phones, and they themselves are, are pushing very heavily for that. So it's something that I believe in uh, British Columbia, um, those in charge uh, need to step up here and do right by our students as well as by our teachers and implement a province-wide ban. Is there a way, Tara, to do it with nuance that would still allow the teachers who want to have the cell phones to use them as a teaching tool to still have those there? If It depends on, on what we're pushing for. If we're looking for best practices in classrooms, I believe that um, the best thing to do is not have them at all. Um, if there would like to be some impact, uh, because we already know that it is, um, it's, it's, it's an inferior learning resource, okay? It's not well, uh, well um, done for understanding what the best way is to implement knowledge. Um, it, you know, that comes from the teacher themselves. 
if teachers, at, you know, at certain levels, maybe in high school, would like prefer to use them as um, as a teaching tool, that should be up to the individual schools if they would like. Um, I'm not going to really get into the nuances in terms of you know if they should or shouldn't be doing this, um, but I do. I just go by what the evidence suggests. The evidence suggests that it doesn't work. It doesn't work very effectively, so why have them? It's just more of a distraction, and it's an inferior learning resource. So if, if, if they would like to do that, um, I suppose there could be ways of, of trying. However, what we're seeing with those schools um, and those areas where they've implemented these bans is that it's working very well. And I think we need to sort of model success. Yeah, I've been wondering about this because I know this news came out in the last few weeks and I thought people might have been busy with the holidays, but I know there's been some work done to look at why are our test scores declining, right? Why are right. students not as good at math? Why are they not at good, not as good at reading? What has happened over the last 10 years? And do you think phones have something to do with that? We know they do. We also have uh, what, what you're referring to is when we have also had um, the PISA scores that came out in December, December, which is a global sort of international assessment that have been looking at uh, scores, you know, over, over the entire, you know, um, you know, globally. And definitely in British Columbia, you've seen a massive decline. And they did actually measure, you know, what happens when we, had, when we introduce, you know, uh, phones into the classroom. And they have seen that there's been a massive, uh, significant decline in students using, you know, phones in the, in the, you know, like in the classroom for their learning. And even for those that aren't using it, they're still being distracted by the actual presence of phones in the schools. So it's something that we really should be paying attention to and just sort of look at best practices when it comes to our kids. And the other thing I, I do have to mention, Simi, here, it's, it's, it's the other thing that we're seeing a lot of pushback from have been parents themselves and saying oh, yeah. that they should have access, you know, to their kids during the day. Um, they still can. It's called a school office. You know, they can contact the school if they need to, um, if they need to get a hold of their students but, or a hold of their kids. That hasn't changed. But what we've seen in the last 10 years, you know, with this upsurge of, you know, cell phone use, you know, especially amongst our kids, is that there's even more distractions, that constant ping, that constant trying to get a hold of their kids for, you know, for whatever reason it oh, is. Yeah. And we have to understand that schools are a place of learning. It's not a babysitting service. So they really should be allowing <laughs> teachers and allowing their kids to learn during the day without any of those distractions. Now, Tara, I wonder, is it about acknowledging... I know that teachers, a lot of them will say this is a valuable tool. Sure, yes, I agree. However, it's about acknowledging what kids are doing with those phones outside of the classroom but still in school. Right. And I think that there's something to be said for that. And I think you also have to be looking at rates of behavior. We're seeing now a lot of teachers are reporting outrageous behavior, even at the elementary level. What's the cause of that? You know, we're seeing lots of online bullying. What's the cause of that? So why not just remove it? And it would just go back to, um, you know, what the priorities are in school, which is learning. And I think that would really aid teachers so that they don't have to be these, you know, you know, policing, you know, the cell phone use all the time. And I've actually heard from more high school teachers that are saying that they absolutely want to go further. They want to ban them outright on school property. They don't even want to really? see the cell phone on. Yeah, and that comes from teachers because they've seen the detrimental effect it has in classrooms. So, yes, it can be used as a tool. Again, as I said, the research indicates that it is an inferior learning resource. But everyone now and then, as a grown-up, if you would like to access it, sure. I mean, that should be your priority. However, when it comes to actual, you know, you know implementing, you know, you know, good learning in the classroom, that should really come from good quality textbooks. That can come from online resources. That can come from lessons from the teachers themselves. 
And um, teachers just, just, they know that, in, right. you know, inviting that into the classroom, you're just looking for, for something that's just not going to go very well. You talk about online resources. And I, so I guess it's, what it's about here is having the school control that online access as opposed to it just being available to everybody on, at school. If it, if it could be for that, it should actually go further. It should come from the province. You know, back in the day, we used to have resources that were mandated by the province. And now they've now been shift, that shifted that responsibility over to the districts, um, which is causing increased pressure on those below them to kind of come up with their own. And a lot of times, this is where we run into trouble. We don't know the quality of the resource. I mean, they should be properly implemented based on a lot of evidence behind them to show that they actually work. You know, we don't, we don't do this with medicine. We don't just say, oh, this looks kind of fun and it looks kind of popular. Let's give it to our kids. And we shouldn't be doing it in the classroom. A lot of very popular online resources may not be effective. So why are we using it? So we just, we just have to kind of take a breath and pause and just say, what does it say in terms of having an impact on our children's learning? And there's nothing that indicates right. that in, in, introducing cell phones in the school is a positive impact because we've seen the, um, the absolute opposite happen. I do feel, Tara, like the way to get this done is to get the parents on board most of all, isn't it? I think you can, but they will. But what has to happen, it has to come from the province stepping up and saying, right, we're going to, and because they will once they start to see that, the behavior is improving, that maybe their kids aren't as, as anxious, maybe to see that their kids aren't distracted, all right? So, um, and I think that this is one battle which absolutely has to be handled from the ministry to say, right, we're going to implement, you know, you know, a ban. And we also have to look at those nations which are really high-performing in terms of academic uh, reasons, and they don't even have cell phones in their, on their school grounds. So why can't we just, you know, mirror success and say, okay, you know, why don't we just do something that might be better for our students? And I think once you start to see some of those results, the, the buy-in will be there for sure from the parents. But, I mean, in terms of just waiting for everybody to get on board, it, our kids can't wait. I mean, we've already seen massive, you know, issues, you know, in our classroom based on the lockdowns for the last couple of years. Like, kids are spiraling down. We need to do something to support them as well as our teachers. All right. Well, Tara, thanks so much for the discussion today. You're welcome. Thanks Appreciate for having that. me. This is Mornings with Simi. 